Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, not one, not two, not three, but kind of four, but the fourth is really a co-host guest on the show today because it's the live from Montreal 77 Fest edition of Turned Out of Punk featuring my co-host and fourth time on the show appearing Zach Blair from the band Rise Against, from Guar, from Only Crime, from so much more, Government Flu, also on the show Fee 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 of the band The Revillos and The Rizillos and a bunch of other stuff. An amazing guest, one of my favorite vocalists of all time and one of Scotland's first true punks, but we'll get into all that later on in the show. Also on the show, Spike Sloss returns for a amazing part two appearance, second appearance on the show. We talk about all sorts of fun stuff. And of course, also on the show, the guy that's kind of responsible for, for ska punk and on, and so much more though. He denies it. Don Letts, a legendary DJ member of big audio dynamite documentarian, so much, so much we get into. The, it's a fun interview, but we'll get into all of that in a second. First, if you want to send me an email, you can find me at turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Left for Damien. If you would like to find me on uh, Facebook, there's a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. Uh, he also is a guest booker, and uh, I love him, my little brother. Thanks, Tristan, for everything you do. Uh, Also, if you would like to support the podcast, the best way of doing that is by telling all of your friends about it. Tell Tell everyone you know. Tell everyone you know. And also, if you listen to it on some platform that has a way to rate it or subscribe to it, do that because I guess it helps too. Um, and that's the best way to support it. Speaking of support though, this show would not be possible without the kind support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans has been throwing these amazing house parties all summer. This weekend in New York City, August the 10th, there will be one featuring Pennywise, Sick of It All, and The Slashers. It's going to have an artist installation curated by one Jay Howell, a tattooer of me. Uh, illustrator and character designer of Bob's Burgers, uh, also of Sanjay and Craig, uh, has done amazing art, just had a big art opening out in California, one of my favorite people, he will be there as well, and myself, doing a live Turned Out of Punk, and this is it, you know, this is going to be the last summer ever for the legendary House of Ands in Brooklyn, New York, as it will be closing its doors at the end of the summer, so come on out, see me, see Jay Howell, See the slashers, see the fucking legends, sick of it all, and Pennywise, of course, as well. I'm going to hopefully be able to sing Bro Him on stage. That's my big goal. You know, I got a, I got a lot of, you know, bucket list items crossed off this summer, but, you know, singing Bro Him on stage at the House of Vans for the last House of Vans show, that's going to be a new write-in bucket list item, but I want to cross that one off. So, you know, come out to that show. RSVP is open. It's free. If you drink, there's free drinks too. It's They're amazing, these parties. Definitely come check them out. And thank you, Vans, for letting me do what I want and, and book who I want on the show and just saying, you know what? You do you and we will support you because that we love you and I love them for doing that. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, uh, over at Vans. 
Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, we have a an amazing live podcast to uh, listen to. And I know what you're thinking. The live ones suck. But this one is really good. Really, really good. If for no other reason than Don Let's reaction to my uh, asking him about bands in association with these bands. And, and also the ever-popular Clash or Sex Pistols question um, meets with a unbelievable reaction from Don Letts. He is, nah, spoiler, not a fan, but you will hear that very shortly. Uh, this thing all came together because of the amazing help and, and kind of push from my good friend and friend of the show who helps us out all the time on the show, Melanie K. Melanie, of course, uh, has been a guest on the show. Go back and listen to her episode. It's a real fun one. And, uh, she had this idea to kind of bring me out to 77 festival and get me to do a live podcast and, Kind of, you know, really helped me put it together and, and I thank her for it because it was a super fun time. I got to meet Faye from the Rosillos. That was awesome. I got to see Faye and Don Letts reunite for the first time since like 1978 when the Rosillos played and Don was DJing. So, you know, it's been, uh, it's been an amazing experience getting to do this live podcast. I'm not going to blather too much because it is like, a longer one. I do have to thank a couple people as well as thanking Melanie Kay for all her hard work because this thing would not have happened without her. I got to thank the fine folks at 77 Festival for bringing me out there. My cousin Miles Hastings for lugging me around. My cousin Garland Hastings for lugging me around. And, uh, and yeah, like I got to, uh, thank, um, uh, and, and, uh, all the guests, all the amazing guests. Of course, also my co-host Zach Blair. You know, it would not have been possible without the team of Bald and Balder. Zach and I will be uh, available to host an event of your choosing. Uh, just get in touch with us over here at turnitapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Um, you know, just fly us out. We we like to have good times and like to hang out with each other. So, as you will hear. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to blather anymore. As you can hear, my voice is a little shot from this weekend of playing shows. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Fee, fee, fee. Spike Slauson, uh, Don Letts, and of course my co-host Zach Blair on Turned Out a Punk. Listen to that episode, by the way. Anyone? You fucking wow, there's a lot of people paying for it. There's a lot of people really dedicated to the show. I'm so good. Episode 101 with Zach Blair and MVP. Is it just the best episode of Turned Out a Punk? It's probably the best piece of journalism ever committed to That's podcast. That's fucking lofty, but I'll go with it. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is the, it's the standby me of our time. <laughs> Zach, set us up for you, for us. Here's what happened. So I live, I'm from Texas, if you couldn't tell my stupid fucking accent. Um, oh, I What's fucking See? So me and my friends were in the park one day because we were dumb crackers and there's nothing else to fucking do. So we're just in the sun, like, sweating. And this enormous kid comes up and he noticed our shirts because we wore, like, punk and thrash metal shirts because no girls liked us and we had accepted at that point. So we were fucking. And um, he came up and he knew the bands that were on our shirts. And he was, this was, uh, in Texas, you're not used to, like, a really large black kid coming up to me and going, dude, I like suicidal tendencies. It was just like, we might as well just got struck by lightning. Like, that doesn't fucking happen, and that's never going to happen. And so he ended up being a good friend of ours, and 
he had come from Florida where he had been in gang activity and shit. So his grandmother uh, had, or his mom had moved him to live with his grandmother in Sherman, Texas. Well, he got in trouble there and then he just fucked off. And it's okay to cuss, right? Yeah, no, no, because I get totally. What do you mean? I've been on the show like three times, dude. I know. I'm playing a band called Fucked Up. Do you see a lot of kids here? No offense to anyone. They're actually young. And so he, and I didn't see him forever. And you're, leaving, you're leaving out some details because he you he helped you guys stand up to the mean rodeo bully. He did, he did. He helped us stand. So so he he sort of God, he, and I was telling this story earlier. I mean, I'll put a different part of this and you remember parts of I it. remember this story fucking so weed. well. No, because here's the thing. It was actually his aunt that he was going to go stay with in Denton. And, and, but here's the, the thing that's amazing is you guys meet this person who's in need of people who's, who are reaching out, need of friends, you know, yeah. you guys needed backup. We certainly You did. definitely needed backup because they were being bullied by the mean rodeo jocks. Does and this not sound like a movie? <laughs> my mouth had been cashing checks all over town that I, my ass, could not fucking cap. Like, you know, so, so, writing checks and my ass could cap. So we have, now we have this enforcer. That's the weed. That's, that is the <laughs> We have this enforcer now that we would just show up in these places and be like, hey, motherfuckers. And he would beat the shit out of people for us. You know, oh, yeah, fuck you, man. Well, he, he got into some shit uh, and got sent back, and we didn't see him. I just lost, completely lost touch with this guy. When you left, you lost over the shit. The shit he got into was a gun battle in the middle of Denton, Texas. It, it, exactly, which is crazy. Which is I mean, crazy. there's guns up there, but like none of us were. We were like 13 or 12 or something. This is a movie. That's what I'm saying. There's a gunfight. He, he's not kidding. He actually wants to make this a movie. Which I think would be cool. I don't know if they play the game, but somebody with a big head. Um, the bald head. I'm balding. Can you guys tell Steve me? Steve Buscemi? Probably so. But he's, he's older than you. So yeah, we'd, have, we'd have to put him in younger makeup, like <laughs> Benjamin so Button makeup. Great fucking creepy. Um, so we... Cross paths again later in life. I, I re re met him. Tell me if I'm telling this correctly. I'm sorry. Um, I don't mean to correct your life, but this is the most important story I've ever heard, including the story of my birth and my children's birth. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> it says this story proves the confluences of universes that are wrestling and punk rock. I, he said that, but I, I see your point. I mean, it does get a little fucking crazy, so bear with me. Um, we re-met later on. I was in a band called War at the time. You guys know what War is. Woo! Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, Empire War. Records! Empire Records. But they had done that before I joined the band or so. Um, so I was in War, and me, and I knew him as Beep. He is now Hassan Assad. Um, we met. He lived in Florida. I was like, I'm going to be there in Florida with my band. Come out, check out the show. He comes out to the show. Uh, my band Guar at the time were on tour with the Misfits. You leave out how you randomly reconnect when he got out of prison. He got out of prison for robbing a casino boat um, after being 15, 16 years old, looking for one last big score. They rob a casino boat. They get away with it. But because he forced everyone into the closet, it was one count of kidnapping for every person forced in the closet. So they tried to send him to jail for life. But he did 20 years. After nine and a half years, they let him out. When he was on work release, he meets this prison guard. The prison guard is also a pro wrestler. He brings in tapes of pro wrestling to show these kids, 
right? MVP gets an interest in it because he notices this guy's one of the guys on these tapes. Like some of it's pay-per-view stuff, but some of it's this like indie stuff with him wrestling. And he's like, how do you do it where you fall on your head and you don't break your neck? And the prison guard, Daryl, he goes, you look, he's like, you look pretty big. If you can stay clean when you get out of prison, come find me. So he gets out of prison, he goes to Denton, Texas, and then one night in a bar called the G-Spot, randomly, or no, he's in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas. Oh, right, yes, yes. Okay, go on. I, he, yes. <laughs> I know this one. I was fucking there. Um, I wish I was. <laughs> I, I used to just go out all the time because I'm fucking hyper and I talk all the time. Um, and they, those two that he just referred to, they were in this weird fucking bar. It was called the G-Spot, by the way. Fucking so gross. And I happened to bumble in right as this guy Al had just been saying, well, I had this friend from, from Sherman, which is about an hour, 45 minutes. Zach, I'm going to have to interject again. What? What happened was, <laughs> he's going around these bars in Denton, Texas. <laughs> That's what it was. Dallas, Texas. Dallas. Sorry, Dallas, Texas. It's all the same shit, by the way. He's yeah, just Dallas, asking Texas. everyone... Have you ever heard of this band? Zach, what was the name of your high school metal band? Oh, it's so fucking terrible. Don't, it's not. Don't worry. I, I want you to say it because I want you to come to terms with the fact that it's actually kind of a cool name. It's not. It, was called, it was called The Extremities of Genocide. <laughs> no, I think it was another band. After. There, was, there was that. There was Government Flu, Extremities of Genocide, Forbidden Cause. Forbidden Cause. That's what it was. Forbidden Cause. Forbidden Cause. So you, you say people make fun of you for that band name. Oh, the, the guys in Rise Against. I, I fucking got so much shit for that. And I still get shit for that. I don't know which member of Rise Against, but Tim. there are some silly names in, the, in Tim's oh, that's too, as well. totally true. Okay, and I'm okay. with him. And Joe. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. But, a a Louie, while being an amazing band. And you were right. You are right. Earned that name being a We all had stupid names back then. They're all bands and chain wallets and big shorts and shit. Um, I was in your trouble. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, so he had been going club to club asking. Oh, you guys are so fucking boring. And then. It's not even totally. It's not even halfway done yet. Okay, it gets more crazy. He had been going on asking about it. They knew this guy from this band, which was a band I had when I was a kid. Nobody gave a fuck. And I walk in to the bar right after he had been talking about this, and I saw this fucking dude, and he came up to me and goes, are you Zach Blair, are you from Sherman, Texas? Once again, I'm going to interject, he goes up to you because you're wearing a t-shirt that said badass on it. I did, it did say badass <laughs> And he thought it was funny because he was 250 pounds yoked, and you weren't 250 pounds yoked. I was this. I'm not, I'm not 250 pounds, I'm two, definitely 250 pounds, but yeah. probably not yoked. I look pretty much exactly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just saying that we, for identification purposes, he went up to your badass shirt and Which said, that's a funny shirt. It's a funny shirt. Where did you get it? And you said, I got it, because you look totally different by this point. You had a shaved head. Yeah. And he knew you as a long-haired thrash metal kid. Yes. And so he said, that's a funny shirt. Where did you get it? And you said, I got it because I play in a band. He goes, oh, what band? You said, you probably haven't heard of us. We're called Guar. And he goes, Guar, I heard about you guys when I was in prison. And you said, prison? That's amazing. You just got out of prison. Congratulations. And he goes, your name's Zach, and you have a brother named That's Donnie. It. That's it. And you played in a thrash metal band called Forbidden Cause. And you said, how do you know that? And he said, because I'm the kid from Miami. That's, that's exactly, I swear to God, that is exactly what happened. The fact that I don't remember that. 
It's so terrible. I don't remember shit that, like, I've never done anything to impair my sort of memory, but that is exactly what happened. You need that weed. It just uh, opens up. But as you're saying it, it's like, it, I'm remembering it, like, oh, shit, that's, that happened to me. I, that didn't happen. Um, and so then it was like, okay, well, where do you live now? He goes, I'm here on business. I live in Florida. I said, we're playing Florida real soon. Okay. Guar, we're playing Florida with the Misfits. Now, the Misfits is where it gets interesting. Thank you for sticking with me up until now. Only Damien thinks this is interesting. He's amazing. It's like, well, so now it gets interesting. So we're on tour with the Misfits. The Misfits has started WWE wrestling, which is the WCW, but whatever it was. For Damien, punk and wrestling, that's his like mecca, his shit. So, so they had started flying out on certain days off to go and wrestle, and they were sort of like the ring guys for this one wrestler, this guy, Ben Piro, right? Yes. Okay, I can't believe yeah. I got that right. So, in the interim, Doyle, the guitar player for the Misfits, and keep this between us, I've talked about this before, this guy fucking murdered me. Okay. So, he had started dating the Macho Man Randy Savage's girlfriend. Well, the girl was his ring girl. In this Dillinger commercial. And his fiance. <laughs> that. So, cut to, we knew this was happening. We were like, oh, fuck. You know, we knew this George. We, I mean, this might told me who it was. And uh, so, cut to, the show in Florida. My buddy Al, who I just seen in Dallas, is at the show with his buddy that had shot, showed him how to, like, you know, wrestle out of prison. Um, I'm putting on my fucking stage makeup for war, because I wear this. Anyway, the washing. And I look in the mirror, and Macho Man Randy Savage is behind me. Pissed. Like, real pissed. Like, red in the face pissed. The way he would be on TV. And the shit's about to go down. Stool's back there as well. The missus are getting ready. We're all getting ready. We're all putting on fucking makeup, because that's, you know, it's that kind of tour. So they almost fought. And Al was there too, who was on side, who is now an MVP. So, cut. They didn't fight. It wasn't, you know, the crisis averted. And then I was just telling these guys, at the end of the show, I was on the bus by myself, and someone knocked on the door, and it was the Macho Man Randy Savage. And he comes on, and he says, hey, can I use your bathroom, dude? And I was like, you can do anything you fucking want. There's no way I can stop you. And so he goes, and he uses the bathroom, and he comes back, and he, we have this moment. He puts his hand, you know, his, he just found out his fiance is cheating on him. And I'm like 23, and I'm just I, I don't know why I did it. I leaned over and I just kind of started consoling him. I don't know shit about anything. I was like, man, you know, women, I, you know, he's just, yeah, thanks, brother, man. I, 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 I didn't say anything. I think I just said, well, you know, women. I think I just said that. And he was fine. But that did it for the Macho Man or anything. But I didn't see this guy, Al, after that. And that was 2000. Didn't see him. Fast forward to sitting in a vapor lounge, once again, the powers of marijuana, as I'm trying to convince you, Zach. Uh, I asked MVP, don't you have a crazy story about the Misfits? And the week before, I'd interviewed Doyle here, and when he started talking about wrestling, he got like kind of like scared a little bit. Like he was like, um, so I asked MVP, don't you have a crazy story? And MVP's like, yeah, I do. And he tells that whole story that you just told. And but like you know, with the details that I of course have added now, he's got an amazing memory. Once again, cannabis smoker and concussion haver, but what has not affected his memory. I have no at all. reason for not. No, yeah, no but he, uh, I'm like, and he tells me the story, like the greatest story ever told, and I'm like, wow, that's incredible. And then I'm like, 
who did you know in Guar? He's like, oh, it was this guy named Zach. You know, I was like, I wonder whatever happened to Zach. And I'm like, Zach Blair? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, that's my friend. I'm like, we can call him right now. And so I hit up Zach, and I'm like, dude, I'm sitting here with MVP, the wrestler, and he fucking knows you. And it's this amazing story. And Zach, being too polite, doesn't want to admit that he has no idea <laughs> no who MVP is. Because yeah. he knew him before he was MVP. He knew him before he was yeah. even Hassan. So I'm like, well, actually, it's this guy that you probably know as Hassan. And he goes, sure, man, sure. And I'm like, well, let's do a podcast tomorrow. Let's go on air and do it. So I'm petrified now. I have no idea who he's talking about. <laughs> so we do the podcast. MVP's in the room with me. We get Zach on the phone. Once again, Zach, you have got an amazing poker face. You are no selling that you do not know who he is. But then all of a sudden it clicks in and you're like, holy shit. Beep. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but now Hassan. And, and he really didn't want to be called. Beep. No, he did not. Beep. No, don't, we're going to edit that out. I'm going to beep that out a yeah, bunch yeah, of times on this podcast. When this comes out live, don't worry. No one tell you that real. But, I, but it's been a while. I mean, I was deep into it at this point, And then it clicked. It dawned on me who this guy was. Because up until then, I'm used to bullshitting my way through things. Yeah. I've done this It was life. amazing. Like, yeah, fuck, dude. Insane, man. How's it going, buddy? You do that all day. You do what we do. We backstage. The fucking guy with the thing. You bet your ass. Um, and I was doing that, like, to pretty good effect, if I'm like, you know, because they're excited and so, I have no fucking clue what he's talking about, I'm completely in the dark, like, wrestler, holy shit, Sherman, fuck, crazy, and then it dawned on me, like, oh, fuck, you're, you're the guy, and all that shit had happened, because he went on from that night, he met Macho Man Randy Savage, who took him under his wing, and got him to start, did he not? No, he got his start through this prison guard who like ultimately trained him and passed him up. But then he reconnected with Macho Man really early into his career. And Macho Man became definitely like sort of an advisor to him, a mentor to him, to guide him to the where he is in wrestling, which is like, you know, the top of the industry. Once again, this is like, this is like a, a gang movie that goes into a heist movie and then it ends with Rocky, except yeah, yeah. with pro wrestling. And I think that the, the, the current through all of this is me. Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty amazing. I made all of this happen. The, the, so. the CGI uh, Steve Buscemi. Exactly. So in this movie, I'm just being the guy that comes in for like a second, like, hey, and then that's it. But no, the that's, that's a stand by me. This is like a spin-off movie. I think that's this could right. be a Netflix series, like a 14-part series. <laughs> you guys all heard it, that Damien is actually going to try to do this. But there was an amazing part to the story where he like, MVP goes, and I, you know, I can remember when I was in prison sometimes in, in, in like isolation, I would think about that time in your room, Zach, where I would look at you, where you were playing guitar and you turned and looked at me and you said, I'm gonna fucking make it in music and I'm gonna teach you how to play guitar because I, I want you to that. come around the world with me and, and, and tour the world. I did say that. And he said, that got me through nights in isolation. That got me through prison. And I teared up, I and he teared up, I you teared up, we're all tearing up. And I fucking erased that version of the episode by accident. <laughs> and he didn't repeat it. We did the whole interview, and at the end of the day, he was like, oh shit, dude, I wasn't reporting. Can you guys? It was like an hour and a half. I was like, can you guys do all of that again? And he's right, that was a great moment. And then Amazing. I'll fully, and you can't go, hey man, remember the thing you said about how I was like, yo, I'm gonna play guitar for a little bit? He didn't want to say that, but he did say that. He did say that. And he I did say that. It was the most amazing moment. And I did say that to him. And then when he, after I was like, man, that's a sweet moment. I thought, what a cocky little shit I was to think that. 
I mean, what? dude, that's the thing that's amazing. You did make it. Uh, no, you did. What do you mean? No, you're touring the world playing guitar. Uh, that's true. I do tour the world. I do play guitar. So like I that's making it. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I guess I'll take that. <laughs> I'm puffing my own gear on stage and I'm bringing my own T-shirts around. You know, I haven't made it. Well, I mean, you know, I, I should have been caught here. I think Dana is the best podcast on podcasting, right? Well, you guys got to check it episode 101. Now that you've heard the live reenactment of it. Yeah, you're just going to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I was saying the same shit. But when you like, MVP does the most incredible Macho Man impression that neither really one of us does. does. Yeah. He sort of channeled him. It was crazy. It was nuts. It's like a, it's like there's a fourth character in that episode. And by the way, just because you just witnessed me and him going at it like we do, I've been on his show now three times, and we we talk about, you know, what to turn on the phone, like what made you do what you do, and here's your career. We've never even gotten past the war years, and we've been, we've talked, I mean, it has to be at seven or eight hours now recorded on your podcast. We've never even gotten past all that, so. And we're not going to do it today. I don't think we're going to do it. No, because right now, I got a welcome to the stage, one of the coolest vocalists of all time, vocalist of one of Scotland's first punk bands, uh, Please welcome to the stage, Faye from the Rosillo! Thank you so much. I was not overselling that. I think, honestly, your first LP is up there as one of the greatest punk rock records ever made. All your records are incredible, but that record to me is just like, I don't know, I was listening to a day on the flight in, and it's amazing how timeless it kind of sounds. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's quite quite an odd one to have made a sort of an album that's considered a punk classic, and that's quite nice. Yeah. Because well, I think it's almost like pre, where things kind of got codified and and there uh-huh. was a style. So it's like you're doing something so different. You know, it's like there's a lot of different influences coming in there. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think, uh, yeah, when we started up in Edinburgh, there wasn't any other sort of fun things going on at all. And we were very, very early. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, things were happening in London around about the same time as us, but we didn't know that. And then we found out about it. Um, So we did our own thing. And, uh, uh, but to me, that is the essence of punk, really. Absolutely. It's not just following a recipe. You're doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Well, there's a way that I start this podcast off mm-hmm. all the time, which yeah. I kind of got to do with you because uh, right, okay. I'm a fan. Are you going to sing? No, God, <laughs> we've cleared this room so fast. It would be, there's not enough exits to get everyone out of this place that fast. Um, no, but it's Faye. How'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the word or the genre? Yeah, well... Just to sort of put that into a bit of um, context, we started before there was such a word as punk, okay? So we were, but we did have the attitude. So the first time I heard the word was when, um, actually we'd been playing for quite a while, and then sort of like, like local tabloid press got a hold of it and started saying that we were doing something a bit dangerous or and that the audience were a bit bonkers and things like that. It became sort of like, there's a punk rock, a punk, a punk rock band or the local county hall and stuff like that and then we got caught up in that and then then we sort of said wait a minute uh, it, it, we've been doing this for a while are, are we a punk band then I, I, I didn't feel like that and, and um, um, 
well, I don't know about that, you know. And, and I was sort of ambivalent about it, and I was quite ambivalent about it for quite a long time. So I don't like to be called anything. I don't like anybody to say that I'm anything. And if they say that, I'm going to say the opposite. So I was going, yeah. But anyway, with the passage of time, and now that punk has become a sort of like historical artifact, well, from that period, anyway, that stuff, I, I can sort of say quite objectively, looking back on what we did, that yeah, we were a... We were a, an outlier. We were an outlier of the punk movement, definitely. Absolutely, and I think like you know, it's it's such a, you know, and I, I think once again, like resisting the term at the time, especially it was being put on you by the press. I can imagine yeah. that would be yeah. something yeah. that would be quite natural. To someone who actually was punk in spirit, because conversely, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But going back before then. How did you get into music? Did you grow up into a musical household? Were there people around you into music? Yeah, yeah, my family were very musical. And um, uh, this sounds kind of like really bizarrely old-fashioned, but I mean, some of my family did actually sing around pianos and things like that. And, um, and I sang as well. And yeah, so we were, we were pretty musical. And I'd always sang. So um, the Results were the first band I was in. I was in another band at the same time, but I'd never done any music, anything. What was the other band? Oh, it was an unmentionable band. You don't mention the one. That, well, I, you know, the Rizillos also had another band, and most of the Rizillos were in the other band, and the other band, I won't say the name of it, were the serious band, and the Rizillos were, were the one that we not as a joke, but sort of like, yeah, that's us just going out and doing it. You know, something more sort of basic about it. Um, yeah, and... Um, but of course, uh, once the Rosillos started going, the other band just looked like really a dumb band that you didn't want to do. It just looked like a band that was like really pretentious. And why waste time and effort doing things like that when you can do something much more direct that's connecting with the audience? Mm -hmm. What was the vibe of the other band? The, like, the more the, yeah, well, no, I'm not going to totally slide off. It's still sort of music that I, I like. It was more sort of atmospheric and esoteric, so that we had um, with a Melotron in it. Whoa. And I love Melotrons. So, yeah, so like it wasn't it wasn't really terrible music or anything like that, but it just didn't connect in a really sort of muscular way that I think the Rosillos did. Yeah, what were the what was the I was gonna say a very special turnout of punk thing just happened where <laughs> Damien hears about another band that you've done, he's more interested than that and that than, than the actual band that you did. It's it's a very oh, special right. Damien thing. Alright, well, okay, yeah, well that's interesting. Because I've done lots of other things and I do other things. It's amazing. Absolutely, no, absolutely. That's I think the I think that's the thing about the show is it's kinda of like so many so many people focus on one aspect of someone's yeah. career, or, or yeah. one or two aspects of someone's career, yeah. but it's almost like the interesting stuff is the stuff that happens in what becomes the negative space. You know, like what yeah. was the thing that didn't, you know, didn't get pursued um, that were also influences at the time. You know, and especially you're a mm -hmm. band that has influenced so many others. It's interesting yeah. to find out what was influencing you at the time. Like what drove, like what were. What were you hearing? What were the band hearing at this time that was kind of giving you guys this direction? Because the Rosillos. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd always been like pretty obsessed by certain mm, things. Like, girl group music and and sixties R and B and soul music, mostly girl group music and the Beach Boys, and and so I'm really quite obsessed by that sort of stuff. And then things like T Rex and David Bowie, and so I was coming to it with that already. That was like historical. Um, and that's why that's why I took to. And other people in the band brought different things, 
Um, um, and then when we did actually hear funk, it was really other funk bands. It was like, we heard the dam, that was the first one. It was like, oh, hmm, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something in common here, but I can't quite figure out what yeah. it is. You know what I mean? It, yeah. It's funny how there's this energy that kind of, like unconnected, but goes around the world at the same time period, like 1975, mm -hmm. where it just starts coalescing. But like you have in Australia, you've got the Saints and Radio Birdman. I love the Saints. An incredible band, like absolutely yeah. phenomenal yeah. band. But in mm -hmm. Canada, we have Teenage Head. Yeah. You know, at the same time, kind of forming, and and you know, you have Rock from the Tombs and the Electric Eels in Cleveland and Television yeah, like and the Eels. Nerves and like yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like and then and, and then there's just like this energy that seems to kind of like. Be happening around the world, and it just yeah. eventually coalesces under the term punk. Yeah, you don't know why that is. Well, you know, no band sounded like no band sounded like another band. They all sounded like them. They yeah, I mean, all the band. ones you mentioned all sound completely different, Absolutely. and they are completely. It was all punk. Identity. Yeah, I mean, I think things you know later on things became a bit codified and sort of quite a bit corny and that you know, but I think at that time punk they were all very very different things. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the amazing thing. So when, you know, when you're kind of forming this band, what is the place that you kind of see yourselves having in music? Because, like, you know, you're not really aware that there's also this other stuff happening. No, the Rosillos. Well, yes. we saw, right, okay. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, God, we never even thought about it like that. I mean, you're sort of, I think you're kind of like assuming that there was some thinking going on there, but really, <laughs> there wasn't much thinking. I mean, uh, yeah, actually, this sort of the very, 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 very beginnings, the ideas of the band actually happened before I came on the scene because Eugene and Joe Callis, pretty Eugene, had an idea for the band. This was like a year or so before we got started, and um, and then then they they met me, and um, there's a few other people came into it or, or were already into it, and then it sort of started to get going. But there was no sort of pre-thought or anything like that. I think there was an absence of thought. But it was a gut thing. You know, there was something there. I mean, if you really had to force somebody to sort of write down, what's the concept of thing, this thing? Was keep it very earthy, very, you know, take it down to the basics. Don't do anything that's superfluous. Um, really get down to what the rock, what basically the rock and roll essence is of, of sex, I suppose, and um, uh, sort, of, sort of aggression, but not a negative aggression, sort of like I want to, that's, I want to do something, that sort of thing, you know? I think it's frustration on both accounts. Uh, well, I mean, you're talking about yourself, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, 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 always, yeah, always. <laughs> um, you mentioned kind of the dam being a band that you kind of felt like was kind of connected in some sort yeah. way. Were there other bands happening in Edinburgh, maybe bands that didn't record even, that kind of fit in sonically with what was happening that, from that kind of early wave? With yeah, well, no, I don't mean to be disloyal to Edinburgh, because there's a lot of stuff come up, came up in Edinburgh and Glasgow after that, of the post-punk yeah, scene, absolutely. it was really exciting, and, and these are friends of mine, and I don't want to, you know, but going back really, really early times to punk, no, actually. But it's a very strange thing. You know, the Brazils went to New York to record their first album, and um, what I did find in common was, or a commonality, was the cramps. And we knew them, we knew a lot of people in the New York punk scene then, and we felt a real commonality with that, that it was like taking some sort of raw essence 
of rock and roll and doing something really perverse with it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was the that was the only common that was the that was the commonality. But it was really odd. I mean, it wasn't in our hometown or anything. And I mean, I suppose that's where good luck comes in. You know, you end up being in, we ended up being in New York to record the album because we signed with an American label. And um, so then you find that thing. You actually find your gang finally. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you might, and you find we find lots of other things as well. But that's just like serendipity. The way things the way things go. Um, how did that connection with Sire? Like, how did that? Why, how did you wind up signing with Sire as opposed to like one of the local independent type things? Or well, we started off on a little independent in Edinburgh called Sensible Records. That yeah. was the first thing, and then, um, well, we got very fortunate for us. We got swept up in the zeitgeist, and punk was the upcoming thing, and then lots of people were interested interested in us. And I think a lot of that was to do with John Peel, um, played played us up on his radio show. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway. A lot of people were interested, but we decided to go with Sire, and I can't remember why. Possibly because we had some other people in the label, but I can't think think why that happened actually. He was dying to seem to have great taste. He, he did have good taste, you know. Yeah. We go to Ramones in the U.S. Radio Birdman, like yeah, a flaming groovies. Yeah, you know. Yeah, so there's something that, you know. Maybe that's I think that's probably maybe what you do with it. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, um, and that was fine. But I think the, the sort of relationship got slightly severed when I got pissed one night and I put a cake over the top of his wife's head. So that was sort of much on top of That was a bit unfortunate, you know, sort of like youthful jolly jeeps and all that. Youthful jolly jeeps. Sometimes it's really just not a really good idea. And this is once again why you're the true punk rocker, is because stuff like well, that. Well, <laughs> you know, what can I say? They didn't appreciate that true punk ethic. No, they no. probably didn't. No, they didn't. Um, I've always wondered if Edinburgh, like the, the, the way the music develops, because you you know you talk about the amazing post-punk stuff that happens uh, slightly a few years later uh, after you, know, you uh, guys started going, if that was because of you guys, and because you guys were not... You know, like a, a, as straight up as Save the Damned or something like that. Yeah. It's a little yeah. like left of center, if that's why everything develops. Yeah, I think that did probably did feed into it. And um, yeah, I mean, of course, the Rizillos, and then we also had our own post punk band because we developed in the Rizillos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, I got uh, some records. Uh -huh, yeah, so it was, it was, yeah, I think it probably did. I think it was a bit of an art school sensibility as well. True. You know, and, um, but not an art school sensibility in being kind of like up your bottom, but one of being just slightly being aware of things, like a slightly distant thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe it did feed into it. Yeah. And something that's like, you know, and this comes from like someone from Canada, so I'm an outsider, mm -hmm. but there's something very Scottish about it too, where it's like, it's art schooly, but it's not not soft or not pretentious no. in any way. It's just like... No. Very thought out. Well, you say tough. thought out. Yeah. Well, I think that's what you're bringing to. It. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's I, bring I'll it. say there was very little thought involved. There was just there was just nothing there. Not one brain cell went from one ear to the other. It just was getting up, getting up and doing it. Well, only all thoughtless activities could produce such great art. Then we would be in a much better state than we are right now. Wow. <laughs> um, I could talk to you forever, Faye, and I would love to have you on for a part two at some point and really do a deep dive and get into all the sorts of punk rock minutia and non-punk rock minutia that uh, has gone into your career because it is an amazing career. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm still doing things. I'm doing other things as well. I'm doing different things. I won't go into it, but I am. So, yeah, that'd be good to do. Yeah, good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you want, you can stick around here. You can go backstage. There's more alcohol backstage. Yeah, I think I'll have some more alcohol. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> let's do what's going on and watch a wee bit of Absolutely. movie. It sounds good. Everyone, please give it up. that didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, 
You know, like Gigi's a legend, but for every Gigi, we can all name another local musician that we saw that did a terribly horrible performance that hasn't gone on to I, I just want to see that guy hitting rock bottom. Like, dude, my fucking shit in my hands. I eat it. I throw it at the ground. They what more do they want? Yeah. 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 What the do? Like, why? Why am I not remembered the same way Gigi is? Like, I'm so the bottle. Yeah. But Spike, thank you for coming up. Thank show. you for having me. Any show that opens with Gigi Allen talk, I think, is a, a good show. Well, I thought you were that show. You weren't one of those back then. I can't remember. We met and hi. Yes, hello. Well, CDP show. That was, that was a haunt of mine. That was yeah. my wife's club, actually. It was a club in San Francisco for us. Yeah. Also kind of a legendary club. Oh, I know. As well. You know, I would think so, yeah. Large and lovely go-go dancers, um, punk and rock and roll uh, bands, um, backroom, illicit backroom peep shows. I remember that part. Audra actually got arrested for pandering, or cited, not arrested, but cited for pandering in really? the city of San Francisco. Yes, for putting on peep shows in the back room. Wow. It was, it was great. And she was always so nice to us, too. We yeah. were through we were just... Well, that one's going on, and we were dumb and horny, and we're like, holy shit, man. You know, it was great. It was all amazing. <laughs> well, it's probably better than Gigi Allen's shit club. Oh, I see. You know, like, right in the gate, yeah. there's, no, there's no smell of excrement when you walk in. Yeah. Like, that is, a, that is a club you want to go hang out at. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing getting you back on, Spike, because now I've had a chance to do a little bit more deep diving into Pittsburgh punk history. And I think, once again... It truly is one of the great, great cities when it comes to putting out weird punk music. Unsung. 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 And I think, once again, it's like, maybe much like Edinburgh, it, because the bands it was coming out with weren't necessarily, you know, it's not like Black Flag and the first Sacred Trust album. It's no. like Car Sickness and The Five. The Cardboards. The Cardboards, you know. It's Stick Against Stone. Yeah. Half-Life. Half-Life. Half Half-Life. Yes. Half-Life, though, I think it's because they put up some records that weren't as good as that first 7-inch that are a lot more commonly available. Right. Yeah, Get Hip has their whole back catalog on now. Um, Except for that first 7-inch. Oh, no, they do have the first 7-inch now. You're talking about Under the Knife? Under the Knife, yeah, that was a big one. That's an incredible 7-inch. Mm-hmm. They lost the crowd. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This is what it's is. It's me normally sitting on Discogs while doing a dab. Asking someone about some really obscure <laughs> album. Like, yo, what about this album, dude? And you see people in the crowd in real time just checking their phones. Yeah, this is what people like are normally hitting 30 seconds forward, 30 seconds forward. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's he going to talk about GG? I'm pooing still again. talking about the fucking <laughs> That's what this show's about, you know? It's about, it's about the nerdy stuff, too. But I think it's like, once again, like, it's, it's, I think this speaks to. What an amazing moment in history the arrival of punk was where you had all these people that were suddenly given, you know, permission to go out there and make a record and to try something. And it came at a different time to different cities, to different yeah. North American cities. Like, I guess they trace it back to the bad brains playing clubs and then it just kind of caught on in different places at different times. And it caught on maybe a little bit later in Pittsburgh than, than other cities. Yeah, like I think there's that first wave though, but what, that's not until like late, like early '80s. That cardboards five. Oh, well, like the late '70s. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's like it's almost like everyone kind of was getting it. Like the Gizmos, you know, they put out their first seven inch in '75. 
Well, you know the gizmos? No. You ever heard the gizmos? You know the gizmos? Do you know, do you know the gizmos? Aren't they fucking awesome? You're the Yoda of punk rock. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. The, Gizmos, the Gizmos are the unheralded, one of the first punk bands. Like, their first single is like 76, maybe. Maybe 75 they were going. And they have this fanzine called Gulture. And they put out a bunch of records. Still, I mean, your, your knowledge of this shit is... <laughs> they, are, they are like a, a Midwest band, and they are incredible. They eventually would do a split with Down Jones and the Industrials. Mm -hmm. um, and they would kind of bleed into a little bit of the other Midwest scenes, but that was like, they were going super, super early. That stuff's all on streaming services too. Streaming services are killing our careers, but they're kind of fun. <laughs> it's true. They're blowing our minds at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Blowing yeah. our minds and killing our careers. Yeah, I'm like, oh wow, my whole, like, yeah, I would never buy a record again. <laughs> like, this is nuts. And then I'm like, oh shit, that's what everyone's doing right now. That's what I. I make his records. Yeah. But it's cool, though. It is, listen, it is fun. You can listen to Gizmos. I'm going to go listen to Gizmos in Montana. And now we've really lost the crowd. As soon as they start crying about records on stage. I want to say one thing about Spike Slauson, and I'm going to embarrass you, but I, you are one of the better vocalists um, working today. Plagiarists. It's Plagiarist. not just punk rock, though. And, and I know some real snarky musicians that do what we do that to the person every one of them is like fucking spike and sing you can this guy can sing his ass off of everybody's ever heard spike everybody's heard me first it's some it's amazing amazing stuff that's very sweet well i just i haven't told you that in person ever but, really but here's the wild thing about spike this wasn't supposed to happen like you had no interest in doing this it's not like you're like someone who was slugging it out trying to be a vocalist for years no you got discovered. You're like one of the few people in the history of punk rock that was like discovered. And they worked hard, obviously, but like someone recognized your talent and was like, you got it, kid. We need to put a band together around you. Well, and I fed off the hard work of others. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I worked, you know, moderately hard feeding off of the, the, the hard work and, and uh, intense feelings of other people. But, but know, I still think it's, it's a living. It's amazing because, like, you know, that's why on the episode, I, I, it, it shocked me that you didn't have, like, that, you know, like, yeah, I played in this band, and I did this band, and then, like, you know, I fell off for a while, then I got back into it. It was like, yeah, no, I was just around. Like, you were always involved in music and punk, but just had no interest in the attention-hogging aspect of it that most of us feel so drawn to, no offense, Act. Oh, uh, I fully take that. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely an attention hog, but I mean, it's just the way of doing it. It just happened to be, there were these guys from Psychotic Pineapple, which were a Bay Area band um, back in the 70s, and by the time I met them, they were doing cover songs upstairs at the Paradise Lounge in San Francisco, so I would join them for, like, Turtles, songs and ZZ Tops, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just like a really yeah. weird, diverse kind of mix of songs. And, and then Mike came to, the, uh, to, one of those, um, to one of those performances and then said, would you like to sing for a cover band? And you know, you were discovered. He's like, you got it, kid. Let me put you into the fat star-making system. I remember Mike and Joey and Shiflet and those guys talking about you back then. In, in, in the 90s, like, man, we, this guy, he can sing his ass off, we're going to do this cover band idea. I remember hearing about it before it happened, or while it was happening, you know, getting together, and just thinking, wow, that's going to be crazy, and then sure enough, 
Well, I was really bad at shipping and receiving, which is the department that I worked at at Fat Records, so they had to find a, a position for me where I could do less damage, so. Um, That's also my fault. You were the one who kind of put it best because it was, you said it was a lot of LA people. And that's the reason it was such a cultural incubator. But like, it's a lot of people who came to that shipping receiving, like Chris Dodge, like uh, the guy who did Empty Records, like uh, yeah, they kind of have their finger on the pulse of like how to get their their stuff out, image propulsion, and, and yeah, I mean just something as as mundane as distribution, you know, and selling shit to people. But he looked at you and he's like, "You're the star." You're the one, <laughs> and he knew, dude. He knew, like it wasn't. He picked the one who was like. Didn't have it. He picked the one who had it. I think that's awesome, though, because I think that's like... But then, were you playing bass? Like, how did the bass coming into it playing? I mean, were you playing music the whole time, too? No, I wasn't. I just, you know, I picked it up. I had played it. I touched one and picked one up before, but um, I just was friends with the guys in the Swingin' Utters and really liked their band. They were they were uh, kind of a high watermark for San Francisco at the yeah. time. Oh, so, yeah. like, when that uh, Streets of San Francisco record came out, like... Teenage Genocide and Catastrophe, like I really loved those songs. The Dirty CEP is one of the greatest CEPs of yeah. all time. They reminded me of like a Cali DOA sort of. Yeah, you're also, that's what you said on the podcast, yeah. DOA, and I've never thought of them as sounding like DOA until after you said it, but. But Teenage Genocide sounds like, like a, yeah. like a, you know, and, and like, a few miles south DOA yeah. song. Yeah, about, definitely, you know. definitely. And it's like, um, but anyway, sorry, I mean to take you off. So how did you wind up playing bass? Like you're just like, hey guys, I should be in, I should be in the band. <laughs> I think Mike kind of forced the uh, the issue on, on the Swing and Utters, and they, you know, and I learned as I went along. <clears throat> and then you wound up being a dwarf. Yeah, no, that was before. That was before. Like, yeah, I'd known Black for 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 quite a while. But you and you played like, in the Dwarves too, right? Or did you just sing on? Some I stuff? just sang on some of their some of their stuff. Okay. I never did any shows with them or traveling with them. Or okay, I think I played in that band for a second. No, no, I, I did, and, and I hang. We you know see each other all the time. He still lives in San Francisco. There's still a few of us that they, haven't been priced out. Great band, yeah. An incredible band. Yeah, fucking great band, wasn't Definitely, like they have one of the shows in Toronto that's like you know the you know as Canada is kind of. A little different than America. Sure. Um, we are equivalent in Toronto of the Gigi Allen throwing shit story because I don't think they ever let him across the border. I might be mistaken. Maybe he played Montreal Montreal before, and I'm mistaken on this, but I'm pretty sure he never played Toronto. But was the dwarves peeing into a kiddie's pool and then throwing that on the ground? They did that? Yeah. I didn't know that. They all peed in this kiddie's pool and threw it on the audience. It's like they say at used car salesmen, say, you know what I mean? If you walk on the lot, you know what I mean? Like, you're fair game, you know? I, 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 it's just, I'm sorry to take it, but I have another, another pissing dwarf story. Um, our, a guy that worked with us, he worked with the dwarves in the 90s when they were getting banned from countries and cities and stuff. Richmond, and, Virginia. Yes, yes. Um, and he said they did like a CMJ, it's like some sort of industry thing where they were something fuck the industry. And Connie, who was he, could not be named, went on stage with no clothes, just a Mexican wrestling mask. You know, usually he'll wear the panties or whatever, completely naked. And he went up on top of the PA, and it was packed, so no one could move. And he just started pissing everybody's faces on their heads, and they couldn't move away from it. You know, whatever everybody calls like a thing. Get the first song in, he just jumped up on it and started doing it. There's a lot of pissing with the door. Yeah, and then they faked his death and got kicked off of uh, Epitaph Records. Which is unbelievable. 
Non, was it Sub Pop? I think I figured out Sub Pop. Sub Pop, excuse me. And then it was Epcot Sign. He quit the band or something, and they yeah. they put out a press release. And to people that the guy that works with has worked with Rising forever, he was their dude. That he, everyone was like, he died. They told everyone that he had died. He got cremated. He died, so there was no funeral. And everybody and, believed it. Everyone believed it. And it was really fucked up that people found out like they kept it going for quite a while. Uh, and they got dropped their label when we found out, and it was just, it was... There was an obitu obituary in the SF Weekly, <laughs> yeah. and it was like, you know... Did you know about this? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I remember reading about it as a kid, being like, they did what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I still know people from back then that when you bring that up, they're like, dude, that was fucked up, man. I mean, like, they're not, they're yeah. still not laughing about it. There are, there, there are certain <laughs> cities and certain places where psychic scars run super deep. Yeah. You know, like, you bring up the bad brains in Austin, oh, I you know. get a different reaction sometimes. I've, I've spent many a day with Tim Kerr when that has gotten brought up, and it's been like, cool. What happened? I don't, I don't know about this the little bad tidbit. Oh, the, 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 that's like one of the, the big boys and the bad brains had a... The bad big brains boys. Stayed, used to stay with the big boys, and they found out that this kid, Brandy Biscuit Turner, was homosexual. And Oh, don't blow bubbles. Right. <laughs> right. And so, the... They, they didn't like that, so they did some really fucked up shit to the house before they left. No the house they were shit. And so now people in Austin still to this day are like, fuck that, you know, it's, it's not cool. But uh, yeah, old punk rivalry. See, when I close my eyes, Zach, I remember this like an episode of uh, Ken Burns' Civil War. Yeah. With like people reading letters and different accounts I've heard, so yeah. um, I can go into some detail. Um, we, could, but, yeah. we could, I mean, we absolutely could. It's a very long story, but it basically. Uh, yeah, some, uh... I you know, to talk slower, though. Like, yeah. to be, like, Tim Burns kind of a lilting... And then, like, you could actually do, like, the total thing and have Tim Kerr's southern accent reading just a letter, like, his Texas draw, like... Mine, yeah. yeah, like, I can't do it at all, but, like, just, like, reading that letter about, like, the whole thing going down. But it is definitely, you know, one of those things where, like, there are certain places where you bring up certain incidents in certain bands, like, that... That dwarfs thing where yeah. people are like, no, that's that's over a line. It's not cool. And you can't get over Locked that line up. again. Yeah. That band though, whew, okay. some good records. Okay. The Veers at Gilman Street when Frank discussion, he went to the Animal Morgue before the and, they, and I don't know I don't know if you guys know what Gilman Street is like the Gilman Street project. I think they know what that is. Come yeah. on, Spike. But the city that it's in and the kind of culture that, yeah. that you know what I mean like it's definitely a safe space. I'm not trying to talk shit or anything like that, but it's 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 a you know it's that kind of place. It's Northern California. It's Berkeley. There are a lot of really sensitive people that go to Gilman Street. So Frank discussion. The, uh, the singer for the feeders at the time, Jesus entering from the rear, I don't know if you remember, the feeders, anyway. Um, Vandalism is beautiful, those rock in the cop's face. Uh, ever feel like killing your boss? F exactly. The feeders, the sandpaper record, look, there was a record with sandpaper on the cover. So he went to the animal war before the show and got a German shepherd stole. And then he had like this, uh, like a pearl necklace, but it was made out of like rodents. And they, he threw the German Shepherd out into the crowd, and like they tore it to pieces. And it was it was infamous. And this was back, I want to say, like in the in the late '80s or early '90s. It's like 1991. Like There's a video on the Research Pranks video. Research did a documentary called Pranks. Got Joe Coleman on it. It's got Frank discussion. Mm -hmm. And they actually have video footage of the show. And it's like the whole stage is adorned in animal carcasses. 
Like, it looks like a Disney attraction, but with real dead animals. And Berkeley was aghast. It's nuts. But someone got the collar off one of the dogs, and he got charged for it, because they called the family of one of the dogs. Oh. And he got charged. And then it got picked up, and it was a story in the Weekly World News. You know the, oh. that newspaper, like, the, yeah, you know, the, the same news, news. The, the, Yeah. Well, watch that for research. Frank discussion interview. It's incredible what he talks about. Anyway, Spike. Legendary. Spike, thank you so much for coming up here, man. It's been a lot of fun. Dude. Thank you for having me. We, we got a lot of stuff to get to in part three at some point. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And now. I'm going to welcome to the stage. A legend. Someone who I was kind of thinking about it today. If he had had different taste in music, no doubt might have been a skiffle punk band. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, everyone, people here, please welcome to the stage the legend, Don Letts. <laughs> You got a whole time with that legend shit, man. It's a working progress. <laughs> well, one day I'll be like, yeah, so what? But it ain't happened yet. This podcast probably wouldn't exist or would be radically different, at least, if it wasn't for yourself. So you're a legend when it comes to this computer, sir. Thank you for coming on the show. I'll take that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, Don, uh, thank you for coming on the show. But can I ask you the question that I start all these shows off with? Which is, how did you get the punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the word or the genre at all? Dude, I'm a black man. I was born a punk. <laughs> okay. But it took that whole 77 thing for me to see the black in, see the punk in black culture. I mean, you know, growing up kind of marginalized as outsiders in a predominantly white racist world, I've always had to turn my um, problems into assets, use what I got to get what I need, and from where I'm standing, that's all punk rock. Absolutely. I think that's the thing, is you're the guy who, you know, like, you, you changed this music, you made this music very different. No, because your influence, if you would play people different records, what would they be into? Like, you were making them aware of certain issues, I'm sure, like with The Clash, like you were exposing them to stuff that you would experience that as a bunch of white kids, they probably hadn't been exposed to that experience. I think it's fairly safe to say. Yeah, but it was a two-way thing. It was like a cultural exchange. You know, I'm turning them onto the bass lines and the weed, and they, they turn me onto the whole DIY thing. I mean, I personally think that's punk's greatest gift is this whole oh, DIY. Yeah do it yourself. I mean, listen, I have a problem with the whole people defining punk as that late 70s thing because it trivializes what is a much bigger idea. And that is, a, it's a living thing. It didn't begin and end in the late 70s. You know, it has a lineage. It has a tradition that ain't just about fucking guitars, man. It, it's really a drag to reduce it to just that. It certainly existed in art from time immemorial. I mean, I don't know, the films of Bunuel or the literature of Bukowski or the comedy of Lenny Bruce. So I think it's important that we put it in the context of an ongoing dynamic that can inform whatever you do. It ain't something to look back on. 
It's something for young people to look forward to. And all you've got to have is a good idea and the motivation. And you can be part of this ongoing living thing. Absolutely. And I think that I 100% agree with that, that this is something that is ongoing. And the, as you say, the greatest gift that this genre had was the idea that youth had voice and that youth voice was worth Yeah, but the, like I said, the 77 people didn't create that, man. I mean, you know, yeah. the birth of rock and roll to me was a punk rock moment. You know, Chuck Berry doing the Chuck walk, the, the duck walk was punk rock. Mm -hmm. You know, Bo Diddley with his square guitar, punk rock. You know, um, I even think the birth of the hippie movement when it started was a punk rock moment. What we, we rebelled against in the late 70s is what, is what the hippies became. We didn't rebel against... You remember that picture of the girl putting the flower down the barrel of a soldier's gun at, where was it, Kent State? Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't rebel against that. What we rebelled against was Kitchen Chong. Because <laughs> by, you know, the mid-70s, late-70s, the popular music of the time had no relationship to what was going on on the street. Mm -hmm. And I'm a great believer that, um, you know, every generation needs its own soundtrack, man. I mean, lucky for me, I had reggae to ease my pain. But my white friends, not so lucky. So they set about creating a soundtrack that was sort of of the people, for the people, by the people. And this was punk rock. Why did this motherfucker keep popping like that? Uh, <laughs> you can't take the power. Okay. okay. Sorry, anyway, go on. No, I was going to say, it's funny you bring up Kent State. Well, not funny, but um, Kent State seems like it was such a touchstone. Um, Mark Mothersbaugh, when I interviewed him a while ago, was saying that was the impetus for Devo starting, was when they saw... Kent State as the end of human evolution, and that was the beginning of de evolution. What year was Kent State? Somebody remind me. 1972? Oh, I was going to say 70. Okay, I apologize. Okay. But that was a whole, all part of the kind of, the, you know, from 68 through to the yeah. early 70s. The whole world was exploding, man. And I think what's interesting about that period is that now TV's come into the mix. So we're seeing televised revolution around the world, and we're realizing that these feelings that young people were having weren't happening in isolation. And I think that's what gave the whole movement impetus. Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that made this movement kind of different than other youth movements was now the means of production. Because of probably technology, like photo, you know, photograph, uh, photocopy machines and cassette tapes eventually, but even records being cheap enough to make, were in the hands of the artists. You know, like this was the first time where you had the artists taking control. Like there wasn't labels necessarily involved with the Desperate Bicycles. Like, with Buzzcocks for singles and like other bands. Yeah, that was all part of the whole DIY thing. I mean, the Buzzcocks, what was it? Spiral Scratch. Spiral Scratch, yeah. I think one of the very first self-financed punk singles. You know, the birth of the record company Rough Trade came out of that whole DIY ethos. That was your partner too at Acme Affliction, right? What, what? Acme Attraction. Acme Attraction, sorry, <laughs> Acme Affliction. Yeah, that was the shop I ran with a girl called Jeanette Lee who actually runs Rough Trade Records now. And this is pre the whole punk thing. There was my shop on Kings Road, Chelsea, Acme Tractions. And then there was Malcolm and Vivian's shop a couple of hundred yards down the road called Sex. Mm -hmm. And all these kind of, I guess we call them disaffected white youth would move between these two shops. I had more people in my shop because I was playing like hardcore dub reggae. And you could buy a pair of trousers in my shop for 20 pounds. In Vivian and Malcolm's shop, they were like 60 pounds. <laughs> But they were close as art. I will give them that. Yeah. You know. But it's funny because, like, if you think about, or I'm sorry, when I think about punk rock, I think it's almost like these these two helixes that are constantly kind of intertwined, and one is sort of this high art, 
you know, kind of like falutin aesthetic, and one is something of the street and of the people, and they're kind of going back and forth. It's almost like your two stores are reflecting that, where you're selling cheaper trousers, but this place is selling works of art. You know, you're playing different sorts of music. In these yeah, I guess the main difference between our two shops was that Malcolm's place was a lot more um, Eurocentric. Yeah. And he was playing kind of old school rock and roll. My shop kind of signaled the way that London and the UK was heading, which was much more multicultural. And I had the bass lines. And at that time, that was certainly the thing that captured people like Joe Strummer, John Lyon and the Slicks. I mean, that's how we became friends, is for our, through our mutual love of Jamaican music. There's literally, I was thinking today about questions I want to ask you, and there's sheets of questions I want to ask you. So there's a bunch that I've had for years that I want to get to first. You're one of the first people that documented this music from, like, not playing one of these bands, you know, like, from a video perspective. Yeah. Where did that impetus come from? Oh, that's easy, man. So punk rock explodes, and this fucking energy is happening all over the place. And it wasn't enough to be just like... A spectator, you wanted to be involved. You know what I mean? I think that's another interesting thing about punk. It broke down that fourth wall and said, We're the band and you're the audience. It said, If you've got an idea, you can be part of this thing too. So I'm looking around me and all my white friends are picking up guitars. <laughs> and I wanted to pick up something too, and the stage is getting kind of full up. Now, about five years previously, I'd seen a film called Harder They Come. It's really bright up here, isn't it? I was trying to be cool to take, but it's too bright. And um, I saw this film, How Do They Come? I was impressed by the power of cinema to inspire, inform, and entertain. And thought, yeah, well, I wouldn't mind doing something like that. But in the early 70s, for a black man to consider being in the film business, ridiculous. Then, five years later, punk rock happens, the DIY thing. I pick up a, a Super 8 camera and literally reinvent myself as Don Letts, the filmmaker. I've got to say, I think that's another reason why we're still talking about this fucking punk rock 40 years later, because it wasn't supposed to be like that. I mean, something else is supposed to have happened by now and stolen its sons. But what I think is interesting about punk, that late 70s version of it, is that it was a complete subculture. It wasn't just the Fast and Furious guitars. There were punk rock photographers, journalists, graphic artists, fashion designers. Filmmakers, and it was very much a complete thing. I don't think anything's come along that's been that complete since. Anyway, so I'm filming the things that I like. I'm film filming the punk shit. I'm filming the rave stuff that's turning me on, which is what my film later on is about after this. And uh, one day I read in this music paper, the NME, a popular newspaper paper at the time, Don Metz is making a film. I'm like, shit, that's a good idea. <laughs> and I called it a film. And they said, he's making a punk rock film. I said, okay, it's a punk rock movie. And it would, like I say, it was, it was really me trying to get my shit together. But it so happens that, fortunately for me, I guess I had good taste because I sort of captured most of the main players. Not all of them, but certainly the people that were speaking to me. Mm-hmm. I think also another thing that I've always wanted to find out is what was the reception like? When you're, you mentioned how you're playing radio records because that's what you're into, was the reception always positive or were there bands that were like not into it? Funny enough, that crops up in my film later too. I mean, in the Roxy, what happened was, you know, you had these bands doing the cut guitar driven thing and in between the bands, I do my reggae interludes. Yeah. And uh, for the most part, I mean, it's obvious, people like The Clash love this shit. The Slits, you can hear it all over their music. Later on with John Lydon and the whole public image thing, you can hear the sonic dub experiment. 
But then there were people who didn't give a fuck. I mean, the Heartbreakers certainly didn't care for reggae. I mean, Johnny Thunders was into his thing. But they rocked. I tell you, one of the unsung heroes of punk rock, the Heartbreakers, man, always fucked up on smack. But when they hit stage, they were like, bang on, man. They were a trip. But they were also the band that drove it to being a much more like straightforward rock and roll, I think. No, no, they kind of, they, they inspired people like Steve Jones and uh, Mick Jones to do their thing. Um, the people love the Heartbreakers. I mean, the problem with the Heartbreakers is they brought Nancy Spongen into the scene. <laughs> and that was a fucking disaster. Because before Nancy came in, there was a little bit of speed and a whole heap of weed. But then Smack came in and that kind of had a devastating effect obviously on people like Sid, for instance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let, me, let me ask you a question. So, do you, I've read many things that kind of put you at ground, you are the ground zero, the starting point of reggae and what would become, you know, well, second wave of ska or whatever else, uh, single-handedly coming from you, would you take credit for that? I take introducing these guys to that stuff. Uh, yeah, I guess it's my fault, to a degree. But I'm gonna say this. I mean, people like Joe Strummer, Paul Simon, and John Lydon, they were hit to reggae before I came along, because before the whole 77 thing, in the, early, in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a, I don't know if you want to know all this shit, there was a label called Trojan. Yes, we do. Trojan. Yes, we do. And there was a label called Trojan Records. Yes. And okay. we had an unbelievable succession of UK chart hits between 68 and 75. And also, was the soundtrack for England's first multicultural movement. And they were called Skinheads. Now, some of you might recoil in horror, because today Skinheads are pretty fucked up. But that's not how the shit started. The first, um, the first Skinheads were kind of a, an, an amalgamation of a Jamaican rude boy culture and white working class mod culture. And they kind of um, united through a mutual love of music and clothes. Because as working class people, that's all we had back then to kind of express ourselves and have any kind of identity and find your tribe. You know, what was my point? Anyway, so people like John Lydon, Strummers and Paul Simmons, they would have grown up on the Trojan catalogue. So they were hip to it. I mean, I think what's different about the whole punky reggae thing is simply this. Pre-77, you know, you can dig it. I mean, you know, people like the Stones and the kinks and who and I mean they were trying to they got their rebellious fix through American black R original R and B. But it was alien to their culture. It was kind of exotic, somewhat removed. Mississippi Delta. By the late 60s, early 70s, people like John Lydon and Joe Strummers had grown up with people like me living next door. So what they were listening to wasn't kind of some weird exotica. It was almost like a second language to them. And I think that's the crucial difference. I mean, listen, man, if you listen to Led Zeppelin, only a serious musicologist would be able to make the connection between Led Zeppelin and Robert Johnson. But if you listen to a costume, you can hear Paul do a reggae bass line on Guns of Brixton. You can hear Joe Strummer singing about reggae characters like Prince Farai and Dr. Lamentado. And that was tremendously empowering for me because it acknowledged my culture and kind of, I don't know, kind of leveled the playing field because I didn't feel like a poor relation. You know, I had something to bring to the party. I could stand toe to toe with these guys. Well, Don, 
this is a question that comes up on the show a lot. And I find it's a question that is kind of key to people that are fans of this genre. Mm -hmm. Much in the way that there's a Beatles or Rolling Stones question, there's a Clash or Sex Pistols question. Mm -hmm. And obviously you've worked extensively with the Clash, but at the same time, I've read countless interviews with you and heard you talk about the power of the Sex Pistols in that moment in history. Oh, yeah. So I was just wondering, if you were going to go and talk about and debate the two, Sex Pistols or Clash? Why? Why people do stupid shit This is fun! Like this is <laughs> fun! Stupid shit! The whole point about music is you can have it all, man. I mean, I grew up, I like the Beatles, I like the Stones, I like Blur, I like Oasis. I love the Pistols, I love the Clash. Why do you have to make a fucking choice? That's not because a ten-year-old. I'm not being funny, it's so ridiculous. Come on, man. And yet, you know, what's funny is there's a thing where, you know, people said, I think I said in my film where, you know, the Clash, the pistols would make you kind of want to bang your head against the wall, but the Clash, they gave you the reason. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the thing is, like, you know, the Clash are obviously the, the greatest rock band of all time, but at the same time, the really? Sex Pistols are a moment in history that, like, rock, like you know, rock band. Yeah. But I think the Sex Pistols are a moment in history that could never be repeated. You know, the Clash would be the Clash in different time periods, whereas the Sex Pistols couldn't happen at any other point in history and anywhere else but England in that moment. Really? What about fucking MC5 kick out the jams and shit? I mean, wasn't that a magic moment? Or That's a magic moment, but like, you know, like, and I love Rema Lema Lema Fa Fa, but like, at the same time, it's not, you, you know, know when Jerry Lewis is stamping on his fucking piano, man, or Hendrix is smashing that guitar, I mean, I don't know about that. Rock band, I'm not saying rock and roll band, yeah. rock band. I gave myself some wiggle room. But listen, without doubt, none of the UK thing would have happened without the pistols kind of lighting the fuse. Yeah. I mean, one record, but what a record. I mean, the clash wouldn't exist without the pistols. Fact. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess the last thing I want to talk about is I've always kind of felt that the moment we just saw, or we're kind of still in, I guess, with uh, rap music, hip-hop, is kind of like it having its punk rock moment, where you have the means of production in the hands of the artist through, you know, streaming services, through social media, and you're seeing, like, a lot of artists able to kind of make themselves into stars without, or make themselves... Yeah, I've I got mixed feelings about the whole affordable technology, man, because... You know, just because you can afford it don't mean you can do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the downside of affordable technology is mediocrity. Yeah. You know, I, I've got to say, I mean, the reason a lot of the, the whole punk rock thing happened was it happened because of how little we had, not how much we had. And now, I don't know, with the internet, it's like I said, a mixed blessing. Don't get me wrong, I've got it all, I use all that shit. But the internet's kind of, for one, it's definitely killed a little bit of the mystery of the planet. And it's removed, it's removed the pain and the struggle and the passion, I think, which is very much a part of the creative process. It's almost like too easy now. You can download and personalize your subculture at the click of a button, mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of taken out that human chemistry thing where we're looking at each other in the eyes. I mean, don't get me wrong, computers are great, but they facilitate ideas, they don't have them. And the worst thing about a computer, the whole computer thing is they can't tell you when an idea is shit. <laughs> you know, you need people for that, man. 
you know, don't get me wrong, I love technology. I mean, basically, technology is great, people are shit. Yeah. Strip it down to that. <laughs> I think people will tell your ideas shit on the internet. That happens a lot. Anytime you put an idea out on the internet, there's someone that'll tell you it's shit. You know, and then things get repeated over and over, and all of a sudden, bullshit becomes the truth. I mean, whoa. Um, another thing I've always wanted to find out, um, just because I've never heard anyone talk to you about it before, is what did you think when that next wave of kind of punk bands started and it started getting a little more codified? Like you had bands like Discharge and, and Blitz and you had like that kind of scene begin. Listen, you know what's really funny? People talk about the Roxy. Do you know how long it lasted? A hundred days. hundred days, yeah. And the whole punk rock thing got kind of ridiculous in about a year and a half. Um, you know, the press in that time on a tradition kind of created a new urban folk devil and all of a sudden it was about mohawks and safety pins and bin liners. I didn't know anybody that had a mohawk, wore a safety pin or dressed in bin liners. Nobody. And I actually think the post-punk period was a lot more musically interesting than the punk thing. Punk labels are dangerous things, man. You know, you give yourself a label and sometimes that's all you can be. You know, you were never... I think this is in my film, I think I said this thing in... You know, punk rock was like this ladder, and some people got stuck on the first rung and started, you know, it was almost like a punk police, like, this is punk and that's not. But the rest of us kind of kept climbing, you know, and it's like the difference between The Clash's first album and London Calling, or the difference between Nevermind the Bollocks and Public Image's debut album. Mm -hmm. But post-punk, much more interesting, much more liberating, and people could be honest about what they really liked. So what was the turning point to you where, where punk ends and post-punk starts as being... That's easy. You've got an ask easy question. I like that. <laughs> uh, you know what happened? The Pistols went on this TV program called The Bill Grundy Show mm -hmm. <laughs> and caused some kind of outrage and cussed and shit and they like it. Next day, tabloid hell, you know. What are they called? Filth and the Fury. Yeah, you know, the people were smashing up their TVs because basically they swore on TV. Tea Time TV. Freaked everybody out. But... That became, that was spread nationally across the, the UK, and all of a sudden people were, ah, oh, so that's what punk is about. Outrage, and you know, and it all, basically it created what I call the tabloid punk. Yeah. And literally, the minute that happened, all the smart people dissociated themselves from the movement. And post-punk really happened literally the day after. So what about bands like the television personalities and like the like some of those bands like the more DIY stuff that started like in the immediate wake? Do you think that was still part of the original? Well, tell me some examples. Like television personalities. Um, is that Mark P's? Is that Mark P's lot? That was the, no. That no. was the other band that did Where's Bill Grundy now. That was like I, think I don't remember that to be it honest. It was like one of the early Rough Trade singles. Like there was kind of like a. It felt like there was a moment where there was that genesis of a lot of energy of still bands trying different things before it got codified. But I guess maybe that was just a blip. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, the things, I mean, you know, out of that post-punk thing, I mean, things that were grabbing my attention would be bands like, well, the Slits really are a yeah. post-punk band, yeah. to be honest. Um, pop group. Yeah, absolutely. Pop group. Uh, magazine. Yeah. You know, they're the things that kind of, I mean, there was other stuff going on, but... Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, they came out of the pub rock scene. A lot of people, when the punk thing happened, a lot of people from the pub rock scene kind of jumped on the bandwagon of Stranglers as well. If you watch 24-hour party people, there's a so diss on the Stranglers kind of working there. Because yeah. uh, they were like they were one of those they were like the original band that people were like, no, they're just trying to get in on this thing. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. I mean, you know, 
at the rocks here, there was a, the American wave, and Heartbreakers were part of that, but who else came? Heartbreakers, Cherry Vanilla. Jane uh, County. Uh, Jane County, but Jane was cool. Yeah, Jane, Jane was cool. Jane was cool. Um, the police even played at the Roxy. You know. Yeah. I wonder if they would have found reggae if it wasn't for stuff that you were playing. No, no, I couldn't claim that. That's not my fault. You ain't going to blame that shit well, on me. did you know that? Now, you've got to remember, by that time, Bob Marley was doing his thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sting was obviously... But they, they backed Cherry Vanilla at the Roxy. That's right. And you know what? I think there's a clip of that in the film you're about. I think I, there is. I keep plugging my film. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, I think there's a little clip of that in there. Yeah. Tiny. So they were around, but I guess that early single is totally different. The one with they, they saw the different guy in the band before Miles Copeland one, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not being funny. I wasn't a police fan yeah, back then. So, yeah, no. I, I mean, tell. I was like Clash. Um, Clash Pistols, Susan the Banshees, Subway Set, Buzzcocks. Yes. Where did you the start? damn rock. I've got to say, yeah. the fucking damn rock. Yeah. I wasn't into all the makeup and shit, but they rocked, man. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. But where did you sit on the two-tone stuff? It was great. I mean, two-tone, funny enough, was that, that was um, sort of inspired by the whole Trojan thing that I mentioned before. And basically, there was a, another bunch of white kids that had grown up on reggae music, but affected by the energy of punk rock and kind of mash those two things together. And it was admirable because they kind of they made this music that worked for your mind and your feet. Because there was a lot of political and social content within what they were saying. So it was good, yeah, good thing. Were there any bands that you saw back then that never got signed because of whatever reason, never got documented that you think, you know, is under kind of documented or appreciated now? Or maybe you know a band that did play. But even Johnny Moped got signed, didn't he? And yeah. he was like fucking something from one for the cookies. That second single, Darling, Let's Have Another Baby, or third single, is incredible. No, I can't. I mean, I think anybody that was, you know, worth five minutes of your attention got some signed by somebody. Yeah. But then, you know, you could have been signed by guy that had a corner shop that decided to get a record label together. Because that was fun rock, you know what I mean? Anyone could have a go. Did you like the Cortinas? Don't do this to me, dude. That's cool. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That single's amazing. It's all about taste. Lucky I got some. Now, listen, I mean, listen, like any genre of music, under the punk umbrella, there was a lot of shit, but the moments of genius, my God. You know, it created a ground zero and helped me to be who I am today because. I think, you know, in the 21st century, people forget that music has the possibility to be, to be a tool for social change, you know. I mean, everything I am comes from music. Everything. And it still gets me out of bed on a day-to-day -day basis, man. Awesome. It ain't just about selling you shit. Well, unfortunately, call me T.J. Allen, because I'm eating that shit up. I love this. This has been an incredible opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Give it up for Dawn. Thank you. Thank you. Well, she got me I think, yeah, yeah. I think that's where we're going to uh, kind of go right to. But uh, this has been Turnout Punk Live. Uh, stick around because you're about to have another amazing once in a lifetime opportunity. I want to say thank you very much to my co host, Zach Blair. Thank you for having me. For being amazing. Is everyone going to show tomorrow? That's what I was going to say. And also, stay
77 tomorrow. It's going to be incredible. We're going to have an amazing time. We're going to watch this guy play guitar. My wacky brand of bullshit. We're going to yell Hagfish songs out of the whole time and Government Flu song titles. Yeah. And uh, have a great time. Thank you, 77, for bringing me here. Thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. Thank you, everyone, for sitting on this couch. Thank you, everyone, for coming on the show. And hopefully there'll be part twos and, and threes and fives with all those guests because I could talk to all of them a lot longer. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, 77 Festival. And again, Melanie Kay and, and Garland and Miles and all my family there and everyone that helped me make this thing possible because I had a real fun time doing it. Um, speaking of fun times, I want to say once again, go to that house of vans. We're going to have a fun time there, but also next week on the show, one of my favorite vocalists ever. I know I say that a lot, but I got a lot of favorites, but this is someone who I think is responsible for some of the best hardcore punk that came out of the nineties that unfortunately does not get called hardcore punk nearly enough, in my opinion, also an amazing writer and author of an incredible book. We never learn. And, uh, this is a great conversation next week. Eric Davidson is on the show. That is next week on the show. I will see you then. We will be having more fun. Go out there and make your own culture. Do whatever you, uh, you know, you need to do to, to, to stay happy and stay positive right now. Um, and, uh, I love you and I will see you next week. Thank you very much. Goodbye.